This has naturally led the European Union to value even more our partnership with Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. The Russian war on Ukraine has increased awareness in the EU of the dangers of authoritarian regimes and also shone a light on their alliances. As we just heard in the introduction from EU High Representative Vice President Joseph Borrell, Taiwan has become increasingly important in this discussion as it continues to face the aggressions of the People's Republic of China. This week, in an interview with Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, the Guardian newspaper reports that Taiwan's government believes that China is preparing to find another pretext for practicing their future attack on the island, after a record-breaking year of military threats and incursions. So far, in 2022, there have been more than 1,500 warplane incursions, as well as a ramping up of a combination of pressures, including economic coercion, cyber attacks, and diplomatic efforts to have Taiwan isolated internationally. These pressures also refer to as salami slicing. In addition, since the reappointment of Xi Jinping for a third term at the 20th Party Congress, there has been a major purge of party ranks, leading to a closing down of many of Taiwan's communication channels with the PRC government. In this episode of Perspectives with Nilo, we explore Taiwan's role in the global economy, and specifically what the impact of a conflict in the Taiwan Strait would have on the EU and what actions the EU might take to deter any such conflict. On December 5th and 6th last, the Berlin-Taiwan Conference, organized by Reinhard Butikofer, MEP for the German Green Party, brought together academics, experts from business and politics, government representatives and members of civil society to discuss Taiwan's economic importance and its role as a partner in Indo-Pacific policy. This conference took place against the backdrop of ongoing discussions in Germany and in the broader EU on new approaches for dealing with China, in particular our reduction of dependencies on China and building resiliency of the supply chain. In this podcast, we present edited highlights from the Day 2 panel discussion on Taiwan's role in the global economy. The panel is moderated by Finn Mayer Kuku, head of the China Table editorial team, part of Table Media, an independent startup for quality journalism in Germany. He leads off our coverage with a question to Max Zendlein, who is chief economist with Merix, the Mercator Institute for China Studies, headquartered in Berlin. There should be two scenarios in our heads. One is the like fine weather scenario, the status quo scenario, uh, where we, uh, we can uh, uh, fight a bit about uh, details. And the other is the disaster scenario. And it, it didn't loom large in our minds before February 24th, but it seems much more possible and, and real now that disaster has already happened in, in, in Europe. So I don't think we can avoid talking about uh, this. Um, Max Zenglein, if there is a, a nasty thing like a sea and air blockade of, of Taiwan, which, uh, as we have uh, learned uh, from uh, Mr. Duchatel, makes 60% of semiconductors worldwide, I think it is over 90% if, it's, if it is high-end chips. Um, what would happen to Europe and US if these exports from Taiwan are lost? Uh, just not not in the big war scenario, but in a serious conflict uh, scenario. If 
the supply of, of semiconductors is disrupted, it won't just be a problem for Europe, it would be a problem for China as well. So I, I think there's different scenarios that China would deploy in terms of blockade scenarios. So, I mean, primarily, are we thinking about disrupting the energy supply that I mentioned before? Um, but they will try to affect um, or, or implement a blockade that minimizes the direct economic impact on China itself. So I think it would be very difficult for China to implement a blockade that would actually hit European interests without affecting China. So I think um, any form of blockade will primarily focus on affecting the Taiwanese economy and basically adding or increasing the pressure um, within the Taiwanese business community, within the Taiwanese business uh, or the, within the Taiwanese uh, society to understand the economic costs and test the resolve of, of Taiwanese um, of the, or Taiwanese uh, well, position in, in terms of the cross-strait relations. So I think um, it will be very difficult to implement such a semiconductor um, blockade of such. So I don't think that's a very likely scenario. If if the bad thing happens and there's an invasion of of Taiwan, God forbid, um, and it's may it maybe sounds a bit cynical that we are only talking about the the economic aspects, but this is the topic of this this panel. Uh, so, would you think it is possible, realistic, that EU has the power, the will, and and resolve and the the means to? Uh, to put sanctions against China into motion. I mean, as we have seen with Russia, I think if we have to, of course, uh, we will find a way to put sanctions, uh, definitely. And I think also that uh, the Ukraine invasion uh, also was uh, was a little bit like a wake up call. It's like, okay, you know, we have to be less dependent on China. And this is something that's very noble to say. Uh, but uh, to put sanctions overnight, of course, it is not easy. Professor Steffi Weil of the University of Antwerp and co-author of the study on EU-Taiwan Resilience of Supply Chains Agreement for the Green Party in the European Parliament. And let me say, yeah, of course, uh, we are talking about the economy, but this always goes hand in hand with politics. Uh, so it's not it's not only an economic issue we are discussing here. Uh, it's also political. So I think we need to be prepared. Uh, I'm not saying there is an invasion coming, but in general, to be less dependent on China and Taiwan can be a crucial player in this. Um, so, I mean, let's let's not home. I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not one of the actors uh, that say, okay, you know, we are in these doom scenarios and uh, there will be a war coming. So, uh, but I think in general, to uh, to you know, to further uh, think about this, yes, we need we need to be less dependent, and yes, Taiwan can be a crucial player in this. Mr. Habeck's ministry put a date on this, 2027. It, it was a, in the public. It was perceived a, a bit like a uh, like a prophecy. It was meant as a as a worst case scenario that German economy should be prepared for. And there is no way at all that uh, decoupling happens before uh, 2027. And it probably doesn't make sense because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so we. we We can kill ourselves uh, in fear of, of, of death. But still, let's take 2027. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Schubert, all these arguments against uh, a war are also discussed in, in Beijing. Um, the economic fallout would be so massive, it would actually forbid this, uh, the decision to do so, right? 
Well, all analysis, at least um, by Western scholars on the 20th Party Congress, and you know, the reading, the careful reading of all the documents and the statements of Chinese leaders during that Congress point at um, the um, assumption that uh, there will be no big fuss before 27 and maybe not even beyond that. Um, and, you know, we are scholars, we cannot speculate on what's going to happen. I think also the the question on um, on how the European Union is going to deal with that is more a question for Mr. Butikova, who probably knows the dynamics in the European Parliament, but particularly in the Council much better. I mean, you, you sound very optimistic that, you know, the feeling of pushing back against China is becoming stronger. I don't know. Uh, you know, from a scholarly perspective, I would be more, you know, pessimistic in terms of the council. But then again, I'm not within the apparatus and you know much better. So I don't know. Um, at least for the time being, I would say there are more hints at, you know, no change in Beijing's policy over the next years. But you never know. And um, just very clear, sorry, you know, and also like, you know, in this worst case scenario, I think the EU wouldn't be alone. Uh, and then, you you know, you are in a network also with the with the US who would support uh, and also support Taiwan, you know, in, in, you know, in a war scenario. So, you know, to ask, OK, is it only the EU? Mm, I think the EU wouldn't stand alone in such a case. Professor Steffi Weil, and before that we heard from Gunter Schubert, who is Professor for Greater China Studies at the University of Tuvingen. Also on the panel, Dr. Mathieu Duchatel, Director of the Asia Programme at Institut Montaigne, a leading think tank in Paris. You hear sometimes 2024 as a reaction to the elections in Taiwan, 2027, 2030, 2035. I think none of these assessments is based on an understanding of the actual intentions uh, of, the, of, the, of the Communist Party in Beijing. I think it's based either on an evaluation of the capacities of the PLA, that's for 2027, uh, all that's based on, uh, you know, a scenario of uh, disruption. And so in, in a way, I think that talking about dates and timelines is not particularly helpful. Uh, that's my first point. The second point is um, below the threshold of, um, you know, amphibious assault, invasion of Taiwan. There are many, many gray zone scenarios that have a huge impact on the world economy. Um, some of us in this room were presented with a Rhodium Group study, which was not published, um, but uh, which basically tries to assess the, um, uh, the, the costs of uh, blockade. And I think the, the thinking behind the study was uh, we have to start somewhere to evaluate the possible cost of a Taiwan Strait contingency. Uh, so they picked um, a blockade uh, and, the, and the scenario did not include the Taiwanese response and did not include the U.S. response. It was just the cost of the blockade. And, and very interestingly, uh, this showed that um, the disruptions of the semiconductor supply chain, plus the disruption of uh, stock market value as a result of uh, panic in the financial markets, would have huge consequences for Europe uh, within a matter of days. So, um, you know, whichever way you look at it, uh, the security of the Taiwan Straits and the gray zone contingency scenarios are very much linked to the prosperity of Europe. That's uh, my second point. And maybe third point on sanctions. 
um, many in the US and in Japan think that the um, uh, restrictions regime that we built together in a matter of days after the invasion of Ukraine provides a blueprint uh, for um, Taiwan scenario um, in terms of uh, complete, in fact, complete blockades of exports of dual use technologies going way beyond the ex existing control lists, uh, so extremely ambitious. Um, we have uh, we have an export control working group within the TTC uh, with the US. Um, I think it's um, what really imports here, in, in my opinion, is the communication to the Chinese side uh, that there is determination on the European side uh, to respond with cost. I think it's very important for maintaining stability in the Taiwan Straits that um, there is uh, an assessment in Beijing that this goes that way. I'm not sure that we are sending the right signals right now. That's Dr. Mathieu Ducatel. So is there a way the economy can play a role in preventing a worst-case scenario? Max Endlein. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a very ambitious task for the business community to resolve. Uh, to be honest, I think much of the the um, you know potential scenarios are really out of the hands of of business. Um, they can pre provide you know scenarios how to deal with certain risks. But let's say if I would have any any advice, I think while we're talking also a lot about um, you know reducing dependencies and decoupling, I do think by maintaining very interdependent supply chains, including with Hong Kong and China, um, with Europe, that may be one of the most stabilizing factors we can have. And at the moment, what I'm most concerned is that, you know, companies will tell you they do not want to decouple. It's not in their interest. Uh, while they're onshoring more high tech into China and de facto decoupling, that I think is a very dangerous pathway. Um, I think we need to find measures that this doesn't happen to, some, to that degree, that we maintain um, you know, global integration as much as, as, as possible and that we also safeguard uh, Taiwan's role in these global supply chains. That's an interesting one. So in order to prepare for the worst case, we have to decouple. But in order to prevent the worst case, we have to keep uh, economic relations uh, tight. We can't do both at the same time, right, Professor Schubert? Well, that's a very liberalist perspective, and I um, I subscribe to that. I mean, if you looked, if you listen to uh, Chinese and Taiwanese scholars, but also um, policymakers, they would tell you, you know, we are talking about the periphery of China. We are not talking about Europe. We are not talking about the U.S. We are talking about South Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Central Asia. That's what we Chinese consider our periphery, and that's the the space we want to integrate and connect. And the Taiwanese would, many Taiwanese would just buy into that and say, "Well, that's exactly what we need for stabilizing our economy long term." And uh, so there is a huge um, drive, I would say. On the on the part of many uh, sides in in the region, that no matter what uh, what kind of problems there are with China, but it's still the economy stupid, yeah, and um, and and we have to know this in Europe. We play a role, an important role. I agree fully to that in terms of technology transfer, and, and that's the same uh, for the U.S. But there is also an understanding in East Asia that this is a huge market that needs to be integrated, and that's the future of that region.
And uh, in terms of conflict, I think um, I fully agree to this uh, standpoint. The only chance we have to reduce conflict is to keep integration at a high level with all the risks. I think de uh, decoupling bears more risk. This does not mean that one has to be naive and not protect his or her own technologies. But if you think uh, uh, into, you know, a separation of supply chains out of a highly integrated economy, I think in the end you produce much more conflict than you produce stability. So you're not a fan of the drafts of the China strategies that are circulated? <sighs> well, you know, I can, I can, um, again, it's... It's a very uh, uh, complicated problem. Parts of it, I think, it's uh, are important, but other parts are maybe too much. Uh, and we are now in a state of discussion. It's a state of, you know, it's, it's a stage of transition. Uh, we have, we still have to, you know, need to discuss about the consequences that Dr. Duchatel, for instance, just mentioned. And and this is something that we cannot really do too quickly. At the same time, the Chinese have the same debates. I mean, the, the Chinese discuss about their own vulnerability, how they have to protect themselves, but how they have to keep a global integration at a level where they can really have a future. I mean, the same discussion that we have here, they have there. Uh, so I think, um, why not talking a little bit together against all the odds? Yeah. So we have heard already that so many Chinese products are not possible without uh, Western contribution and Taiwan contribution, including military or aerospace uh, products, even the civilian ones. Uh, Mr. Duchatel, could the, should the EU rather use strategic ambiguity toward China or draw a red line and say, uh, if you if you do this, then there will be sanctions? Well, my personal opinion on this is that uh, we should uh, first be really clear about our contingency planning. Uh, what are the consequences of various scenarios? Uh, and I think that um, some of the reactions for each scenario uh, should be communicated to the Chinese side through diplomatic channels. Um, I don't think that this should be you know, made public. And, and I know that many people have different opinions about that, that uh, being public acts as deterrence. I think that um, uh, clarifying what would be the reaction of the European ABCD should be communicated directly uh, to, the, to the Chinese side. The next question was regarding Taiwan's trade dependence on the People's Republic of China, and if China could use this as leverage to make Taiwan more compliant to their wishes without a direct invasion. Max Zendlein again. I think when we talk about Taiwan, we have a lot of focus on the semiconductor industry. Uh, we look maybe at the trade figures of you know over 40% of Taiwanese trade going to, to China, most of that being semiconductor. And I think... Um, we need to look beyond that because also if you look at semiconductor, um, you know, China is not the end market for all of these exports. So um, they use, you know, semiconductors go into a lot of electronics that go to global markets. So I think um, that is less such of a vulnerability, but nonetheless, um, we've had economic coercion in, let's say, also non-strategic sector that would not affect China. So we've had it in agriculture and the like, which you know, are mostly symbolic. Um, it's it's not very relevant for the Taiwanese economy. Nonetheless, it hits these uh, sectors fairly hard. But I think there is still potential that China expands the extent of economic costs that it that are felt more wider across the Taiwanese um, society. So, just examples, um, there could be efforts to. 
um, some form of disruption of supply chains that trigger inflation that make it more difficult for, for Taiwanese companies in Taiwan to operate. And that might try to paint a picture um, that Taiwan is basically uninvestable um, for foreign companies and is not a reliable partner in, in global supply chains. So I think there's measures that can be taken that would have an economic costs. The question is how China would well, actually begin to enforce this um, and um, well, what the consequences all of this uh, with this uh, or would be for um, you know, Taiwanese position. So I do think, you know, while we're talking a lot about these war scenarios, um, these are the type of economic vulnerabilities um, that we will have to think about in such scenarios. Have you also looked at the possible reper repercussions for German companies in uh, such a scenario? Because uh, German companies are so much entwined with the Chinese market. Well, I think, firstly, it's, it's important to understand that any Taiwan risk um, is not isolated to Taiwan, and it would also increase risk for any European investments or business ties um, with China. And uh, I mean, the, the political signaling by the, the Chinese side will be very clear. There will be an expectation that the companies uh, fall in line. So I think this is something, these are scenarios um, companies, politicians need to prepare for. Um, in order to also signal uh, what type of response would be in case of such um, extended use of economic coercion when it comes to Taiwan. So to sum up this first round of our discussion, um, I'd say we, we can state that uh, China and the EU have a common problem, um, uh, which is China and dependence on China and a lot could be done for that. Steffi Weil, you picked up your microphone. Uh, no, no, no. I was just, I, mean, I, I'm, I was just wondering because we uh, it's, uh, have a couple of questions of thoughts uh, because, you know, if we are thinking out, uh, thinking of moving out production out of China, investing in Germany, I think this is a very radical step. Huh? So in my mind, I was, I mean, is it even feasible or is it something that is feasible within the, the coming years? So I was wondering if we shouldn't try to strengthen uh, the, the Taiwanese economy or the Taiwanese environment, uh, that we don't have this kind of doom scenarios, that Taiwan is not uh, a country where, um, you know, companies cannot invest. Wouldn't that be like the most logical or more easy step to go? Uh, that was and yeah, of course there are in interdependencies and also with the with mainland China. But this is something uh, we cannot, um, how shall I put it? Uh, uh, you know, we cannot deny. I think okay, we can you know we can see that we minimize, uh, but we cannot erase China as an actor. Uh, we should see that that we get it stable in combination with Taiwan because you know as there are also dependencies of Taiwan you know to China. So we, we also have to see that the Chinese change their economic model. Um, they uh, do everything to get a strong domestic market. And we know from big economies that, does, that a strong domestic market is highly attractive. Uh, it, uh, so there is still a lot of capacity also for Taiwanese companies on the Chinese market if that model plays out. And that is also something that Taiwanese entrepreneurs would tell you. I mean, this is a market that is still in the process of developing. We have a lot of products here that we can sell very well. So we have to take this market into consideration and that over, over the long term. Now, the Taiwan government tries to also help Taiwanese entrepreneurs or in, induce Taiwanese entrepreneurs to diversify. 
by this new southbound policy. But if you look at the economic impact of the new southbound policy, there are very there are many positive impacts on that in the on the social realm, in the people-to-people -people realm. But in terms of eco uh, in economic terms, uh, the impact is much more limited, because the government is is not very you know not very successful in convincing entrepreneurs to change a strategy of profit just because of political um, you know um, considerations and that's basically what the new southbound policy is about so it's it's a good policy it's much better than all the other southbound policies have been in the past what the Thai government does since 2016 but it cannot really change the tide of you know economic decision making on the part of Taiwanese entrepreneurs on uh, in grosso modo Dual circulation is more successful than many actors initially thought, it seems, so far. Uh, what are China's chances to get independent of Taiwanese semiconductors? What do you think, Mathieu Duchatel? Well, that's, um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's an interesting one. Um, Two things here. I mean, first, um, the um, long-term prospects of the automotive industry not to face shortages anymore um, depends to some extent uh, of the success of TSMC's expanded fab in China. Uh, I think this, this is happening as we are speaking. Um, I think the um, interconnection between the Chinese and the Taiwanese semiconductor industry has been in the form of Taiwanese investment uh, in mainland China, clearly, um, but also in the form of um, many, many attempts by China to um, basically access Taiwanese know-how and technology. And here, I think that the um, uh, you know restrictive policies of the Taiwanese government and also the cooperation between Taiwan and uh, other key partners, especially the US, um, is really curbing the flow. Um, and we are seeing this in the area of people-to-people uh, -people exchanges. Actually, the Taiwanese government in the past two years has been very active in uh, trying to prevent recruitment of uh, engineers and also executive managers. Uh, and there's been a crackdown basically uh, against um, uh, intermediary companies that were conducting recruitment um, in Taiwan. Um, and I think this, the third point is that the export control uh, regulations really have an impact. Um, and to really understand that, I think the key notion here is the notion of uh, virtuous circle innovation. Um, so think Chinese ambitions to mass produce seven nanometer semiconductors. Uh, during the summer, we learned that uh, SMIC, which is the leading Chinese foundry, had managed to produce a prototype of that technology. Um, which is a very, very interesting development. Um, but if you are not uh, accessing the uh, software that you need, uh, if you are not accessing the lithography tools that you need, uh, it's very difficult to keep up the pace of innovation. So from another angle, think TSMC's three nanometer production. Uh, it has partners and it does not innovate you know, independently. Uh, it's a whole ecosystem uh, which the Chinese industry is currently prevented from accessing. Um, so in other words, um, I think that there are two uh, simultaneous realities. 
One is that China's uh, footprint in material nodes of technology will increase, and this has an impact on the automotive industry uh, very much. The Chinese semiconductor industry is becoming increasingly important for the world's automotive um, industry. And on the other hand, uh, the innovation is happening uh, to, to some degree without China, at least, at least for the leading edge nodes uh, and for everything that is um, related to defense and that ultimately can end up uh, in, the, in the arms industry. So two separate paths in a, in a way. And doesn't that give momentum for Europe or for Germany to be a strong player in this ecosystem, no? But it goes um, it goes both ways. This also explains um, the um, integration of the Chinese and the German automotive industries. Um, so it really goes both ways. Finally, Dr. Duchatel responded to an audience question on the relevance of the recent EU Chips Act for supply chain independence. Um, maybe I can answer the question about the Chips Act, and also thank you, Dr. Xu, for your points about. TSMC, and I think it's related. I think the CHIPS Act really enables uh, what we are discussing this morning, the possible investment by TSMC uh, in, in Germany. Uh, without state aid, this would not be possible. Um, and all the points you made regarding the commercial viability of these investments, um, uh, we hear that um, the cost of producing five nanometer semiconductors in the US is 50% higher than in Taiwan. I haven't seen any evaluation about the gap in costs uh, between uh, production in Europe and production in Taiwan. But the CHIPS Act is designed uh, so that state aid can be uh, provided to make up exactly for the gap uh, in uh, production costs. Um, so, and I think in fact that um, um, TSMC is also watching how this works in practice because we have currently two cases of foundry investments uh, in Europe under the uh, CHIPS Act uh, modalities. One is Intel in Germany and the other one global foundries in France. Um, um, so that's really the first time. And it's a new development for the European Union that uh, state aids are being accepted uh, by the by the competition under European competition law. That's the first point. The second point is that um, Taiwan is explicitly listed as a partner uh, for supply chain resilience under the CHIPS Act, alongside a number of other countries that are Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and the US, um, but not China. I think it's a political decision to also you know, focus uh, political efforts on uh, deepening exchanges with Taiwan in that area. How this can work in practice, I mean, your report uh, develops this idea. I think clearly when you look um, at the US-EU semiconductor working group under the Trade and Technology Council as a benchmark for what can be achieved in terms of political interactions surrounding the semiconductor industry. Clearly, the easiest part is um, uh, early warning system for supply chain disruption, which in itself is important. Um, and that's a lesson from the COVID-19 and Huawei crisis induced shortages in uh, 2020. Uh, too many orders, a lot of confusion, etc. If you want to avoid a similar scenario to play out again, you need some political channels to um, to see where the bottlenecks are and to 
uh, you know, be able to uh, understand when this is happening. So this is very concrete, I think, um, for, for the EU and Taiwan to work together. Some insightful and thought-provoking discussion regarding Taiwan's role in the global economy from the Berlin-Taiwan conference held on December 5th and 6th last. The panel members were Dr. Mathieu Ducatel, Director of the Asia Programme at Institute Montaigne, Max Endlein, who is Chief Economist with Merix, Professor Steffi Weil of the University of Antwerp, Gunter Schubert, who is Professor for Greater China Studies at the University of Tuvingen, and the moderator was Finn Mayer Kuku, Head of the China Table editorial team. The event was organized by Reinhard Budikofer, MEP for the German Green Party. Most of the coverage of this two-day conference is available on YouTube, the link to which is provided in our blog at pwnilo.com. That's pwnilo.com. And there you'll also find all previous episodes of this podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Instagram and Twitter. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánach Banacht. <laughs>